Hello, and welcome back to the North Georgia Blue podcast, produced and distributed by the Fannin County, Georgia Democratic Party. I'm your host, Meryl Clark, and we're getting into some good trouble today with our guest, U.S. Congresswoman and Georgia Democratic Party Chairwoman, Nakima Williams. Welcome to the show, Congresswoman Williams. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, we're very excited to have you here. So let's tell our listeners, as if they don't know, but let's tell our listeners a little bit about you. Congresswoman Nakima Williams has been a fierce advocate for social justice, women, and families throughout her political and professional career. She is proud to represent Georgia's 5th Congressional District in the United States Congress. As a member of Congress, Congresswoman Williams continues to uplift the legacy of her mentor and predecessor, the great Congressman John Lewis, by fighting to prevent voter suppression and expand free and fair access to the ballot box. She always centers the voices of those who are most marginalized. She brings this concern to Congress, how women and people of color continue to fight for racial and social justice in our country. The Congresswoman was elected as the freshman class president for the 117th Congress. As president, she organizes and advances the interests of her freshman Democratic colleagues to fulfill their oath to work for the people. She currently sits on the Financial Services Committee, where she is vice chair of the Subcommittee on Investigations and Oversight, Transportation and Infrastructure. Congresswoman Williams is also a member of the Select Committee on the modernization of Congress. She has membership in several caucuses, including the Congressional Black Caucus, the Democratic Women's Caucus, Congressional Progressive Caucus, Voting Rights Caucus, LGBTQ Plus Equality Caucus, and the HBCU Historically Black Colleges and Universities Caucus. She has a passion for a number of legislative issues, including voting rights, reproductive justice, social justice, economic justice, and healthcare. Her work addresses delivering on the promise of America for all. Congresswoman Williams has a history of advancing the issues that matter to Georgians and underserved people across the country, regardless of their bank account or zip code. Before her congressional service, she served in the Georgia State Senate. As a state senator, Williams got into good trouble, of which Congressman John Lewis spoke. In the wake of the disastrous 2018 Georgia elections marked with rampant voter suppression, she was arrested at the Georgia State Capitol while peacefully protesting with her constituents and demanding that every vote be counted. You're certainly in great company there. She was born in Columbus, Georgia, and raised by her grandparents in Smith's Station, Alabama. She attended Talladega College, a liberal arts historically Black college in Talladega, Alabama. Congresswoman Williams has also been recognized as one of Georgia Trend Magazine's 100 Most Influential Georgians, 40 Under 40, Power 30 Under 30, Outstanding Atlanta, and Who's Who in Black Atlanta. As state senator, she received the Freshman Legislature of the Year Award from the Georgia Legislative Black Caucus and the 2020 Pinnacle Leadership Award from Delta Sigma Theta Recently, she was awarded the ACLU of Georgia's Dare to Create Liberty Award. The Congresswoman and her husband, Leslie Small, reside in Atlanta with their son, Carter. Oh my, where do you find the time to get all of this done? (laughs) Congresswoman, you are just a force to be reckoned with. And I say that in a good way. 
So tell me a little bit about how you've helped change the Democratic Party of Georgia's charter and goals to better reflect our current reality in the political space as chair. And how do you anticipate that these changes will affect the individual counties and the state overall? Well, first, I'm so happy to be here. And I know that you were saying in the beginning that you are in a small county and just grateful for me, but I'm grateful for you and the people across the state, regardless of where you're from. When I say that we are not leaving any vote or voter untalked to or on the table, I truly mean that. And so we're organizing across this entire state. That is a commitment that I made in 2019. I was elected as chair in January of 2019 two years ago. And boy, oh boy, what a long way we've come. I'm the first Black woman to ever serve as chairwoman of our state Democratic Party. And I made a commitment that we would organize year-round. That was my top priority. So we're going to build a year-round organizing program. We would always hear, well, we'll just start before Labor Day this year, and that'll get us a little bit further. And we would get close in some races, and but still not quite far enough. And so I decided that we would just organize year round. We're continuing to add constituency groups to the DPG, constituency group leads, so that we can continue to organize people who turned out in the November elections and changed the course of the country's history. So we're not leaving any part of the state out of this conversation because I understand that every vote is equal and we have to organize. Direct voter contact makes a huge difference. I also am a former county party chair. And so I know how important it is that we have strong county parties. And we have our vice chair of congressional districts and county parties, Sarah Todd, who put so many miles on her car, driving back and forth and just making sure that our county parties have the support and the structures that they need. We've chartered more new county parties than ever. We still have not gotten to that magical 159 county point, but we're working on it. And we just continue to build. It's about giving people the confidence in our ability to win, but also doing the organizing to get there and making sure that we protect our votes along the way. We have the first full-time voter protection director in the country at the DPG, and we are building that staff and just making sure that we are at the forefront of pushing back against the voter suppression laws that are coming down the pipeline and turning out our voters. So a lot of this work goes back to the county committees. And again, I am thankful for everything that you do because I know that it is not always easy. And it is why I am willing to join podcasts like yours because I need people to understand that we're all in this together. So I might be the chairwoman, but I cannot and I will not do it alone. We have to all be in this together. And so I am grateful for your partnership. Well, I agree completely, and we're immensely grateful for you and all the hard work that you put in for Democrats, not only across Georgia, but across the nation. So I wanted to ask you, with the midterms coming up next year, how is the DPG, the Democratic Party of Georgia, planning to get the vote out as it did in 2020? And how are you fighting the suppressive voter laws enacted by Republicans in Georgia and other states? And how do you believe it will affect turnout? in 2022? Well, I kind of just laid some of that part out. Sure. We had a clear playbook on what we knew it would take to win. When the rest of the country counted us out, we continued to organize. And that's what we're doing right now. We are continuing to organize. We're already into the 2022 election cycle right now. We knew that as soon as we won on January 5th, 
we could not let up because the election cycle for 2022 started on January 6th. So our staff has continued to grow and we're continuing to organize. We're building our coalitions. We know that Georgians are a diverse group. And so we want to make sure that when you come to the Democratic Party, you know that you are represented here. We are the party of diversity and we're stronger for it. We also have seen the latest headlines where 95 percent 95% of all eligible Georgians are registered to vote. And so we have to do the work to make sure that we talk to them to turn them out to vote. There is no such thing as an off year. So I always tell people democracy doesn't start and stop on election day. This is a year round thing. And at the DPG, we organize year round. To touch on the voter suppression piece, Georgia has been ground zero for everything bad and everything good when it comes to voting. So we are going to continue to organize, but some things we can't just out-organize bad laws. So we have our legal team that we are working on to make sure that we are training our county committees on exactly what things have gone into effect that will make it different for people going out to vote, trying to put it in real terms. So you hear a lot of the things on TV, but what does it look like in practice? How is that going to impact your local communities? And so we have to continue to educate the voters on the changes in this law. And then also making sure that we are defining who we are as a party. So we're going to organize and we're going to mobilize, but we got to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to make sure that every Georgian understands who's trying to make it more difficult for them to vote and who's trying to make it easier for them to vote. We have seen what the Republican Party is doing right now with the attempt to take over the Fulton County Election Board. We have 159 counties in the state, but there's only one county that they're interested in doing this investigation in. So we can meet them at the ballot box. We can meet them through policy at the legislature, or we can meet them in court because we have to make sure that we are ready to fight on all fronts. And that's exactly what we're doing at the DPG. Fantastic. And you're doing a great job, may I add. So how is the DPG currently fighting gerrymandering attempts by the state GOP to swing votes their way? And why does it matter? Why should we care? The DPG is very much involved in the redistricting process. We're watching what is going on. And just so that any listeners are clear on what exactly will happen, it's our state house and our state senate. The state legislature is who draws our maps here in Georgia. And so there will be a special session later on this fall where legislators will come back to Atlanta and they'll draw and know that our state is controlled by every constitutional office and our state house and state senate is controlled by Republicans. So they are going to be looking at how can they gerrymander their way into holding on to their majority that they see waning because Democrats are continuing to grow in the state because our policies are better, our proposals are better, and we truly represent the people of the state and not ourselves. So I'm continuing to work with our House and Senate caucuses, but also making sure that we are engaging people across the state so that we can have an open and transparent redistricting process. We need Democrats across the state to turn out to the redistricting hearings as they're being held so that we can let them know what our intent is. We want a fair and free process. 
We want our voters to choose our elected officials and not the other way around. The DPG is very involved in this process, and we're going to make sure that our voices are heard. Our legal counsel is also watching because I know that this process hasn't always been fair for Democrats in the state, for the people of this state. It's been too focused on the elected representatives and not the people who we should be representing. And so we want to make sure that we're making this process as fair and open as possible and as representative as possible. And that's just not what our friends at the Republican Party are focused on right now. This is true. So how are you and the DPG fighting the dis and misinformation that they are currently peddling, not only in Georgia, but across the country? You're right. Yes. Yes. And so we look at it like this. Democrats deliver. And so we have to continue to elevate the work that we're doing and the difference that is making in people's lives. I had the opportunity to go to a roundtable with some young college students two weeks ago. And as we were sitting there, there are a lot of people in the room who didn't know what Democrats in Congress have been doing since January. And so I asked who in the room attended Clark Atlanta University and some of the students raised their hand. And I said, remember when all of the balances got wiped clean from anybody who had a balance left on their account at school from tuition? Raise your hand if you remember that. And everybody who's raised their hand. And I let them know that it was the American Rescue Plan that made that possible. And not one Republican in Congress voted for that. Not one. Mm -hmm. That was Democrats delivering for the people, getting funds back to our local governments, helping to get our economy back on track. And so we have to continue with the message that Democrats are working to deliver for the people while Georgia Republicans are continuing to play politics and pander to their far-right conspiracy theorists. And they're just obstructing our ability to move forward to work on behalf of working families. Let's talk a moment about Georgia's minimum wage. It's only $5.15 an hour, less than the federally mandated wage of $7.25. Georgia is one of only two states with a wage lower than the federal one. What are you and the DPG doing to fight for a living wage for all Georgians? So the DPG, I mean, our core values are representing working families in the state, but unfortunately, Republicans control every aspect of our state government right now. So it's up to us to do the work to get people elected to office, to get Democrats elected to office that represent the working families of this state. So we have to change who's making the decisions if we want better decisions being made. And that's what we're focused on at the DPG. We're focused on making sure that we are competitive up and down the ballot across the state so that we can get people elected to office because we need to bring this up on the campaign trail and let voters know who's holding them back and who's working to move them forward. So I see this being a big issue coming up in 2022. We need to continue to talk about it and understand who's in charge right now that are keeping wages so low in the state and what the Democratic Party of Georgia stands for. And that is delivering for working families. Right, because it's certainly not a living wage. At all. So this is something Democrats do believe in, thankfully, is a living wage and taking care of their people. So that dovetails into my next question. How will we turn the Georgia legislature, the General Assembly, blue? What is our strategy for doing that? So unfortunately, I think people always want like this magic pill to like turning the state blue. Mm-hmm. And what it comes down to and what we've learned is it is our year-round organizing. It is making sure that we are focused all across the state. We don't have the luxury of being just focused on rural Georgia or just focused on metro Atlanta. It's going to take all of us 
So we have to have a statewide plan, which we do, and we have to make sure that we are talking to people about the issues that matter to them. And that's easy for us because we represent the diversity that is the state and we represent the issues that working families care about. And so what we know is we have to continue to educate voters so that they can turn out in force. And we have to continue to highlight the work that Democrats in Congress are not one, but two U.S. senators that represent our party, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock. We got to highlight the work that they're doing. And we have to make sure that we're localizing it. We have to meet people where they are and making sure that they understand how every level of government impacts them and affects their life. And that starts at the very local level. And that's why it is so important that I come to podcasts like yours, because we have to reach people all across the state at every level of engagement. And we appreciate that very much. So let's turn to your critical work in Congress on behalf of Georgians and and the nation. You represent Georgia Congressional District 5, which covers three quarters of Atlanta. That's quite a bit of ground and a lot of folks. You've served your constituents and all Georgians through several pieces of legislation, including and most recently House Bill 4934, the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act, with 35 co-sponsors signing on, including Georgia Senator John Ossoff. So where are we with this bill? And has it passed the House yet? So it has not passed the House yet. I always center the work that I do, my policymaking decisions around those most marginalized in our communities. And I know that lived experiences matter so much. And so that's why I am able to represent the needs of everyday Georgians and the people that I serve, because I've lived what they're going through. And I understand And so earlier this month, I teamed up with my constituent and my senator. I often say that I am Reverend Warnock and Senator Ossoff's congresswoman. (laughs) So I teamed up with Senator Ossoff and we introduced on Black Women's Equal Pay Day, I introduced the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act. And for people who are listening and might not realize this, on average, on average, women make 82 cents for every dollar earned by men. So that is across the board, women. So 82 cents, but for Black women, the gap is even wider. We earn only 63 cents on every dollar earned by our counterparts, our male counterparts. So on Black Women's Equal Pay Day, we introduced the Equal Pay for Equal Work Act because in 2021, it's absurd that women have to work well into the year just to match the wages of our male counterparts. So closing the pay gap is just one way to make sure that women and families have the resources that they need to thrive and not just survive. We are going to continue to push on that legislation, and it currently sits in the Education, Labor, and the Oversight and Reform Committee. So in Congress, you can have a bill refer to more than one committee. And so it's currently sitting there awaiting action and we're going to continue to push for it. And you've been very busy since since you went to Congress. You've introduced many other bills critical to Democrats, including the shoring up of infrastructure and transportation, voter rights, small business, veteran care, LGBT protections, and bills to honor the great John Lewis and also censure Marjorie Taylor Greene. The extension of the Paycheck Protection Program 
program, the PPP, and the Harlem Hellfighters Congressional Gold Medal Act, which just passed and was signed into law by President Biden long overdue. Thank you for that. And your House Bill HR 1799 to extend PPP protections and HR 1448 to fund therapy puppies for wounded service members passed both the Senate and House and are now also signed into law by President Biden. Besides the Harlem Hellfighters, these very brave souls who have finally received the recognition that is long overdue, are puppies and paychecks the only things both houses of Congress can agree on these days? (laughs) And I, I ask that in all sincerity because it seems to me that there's so much division at this moment. How do you negotiate that and get all of this through both houses? So there is still division, and that has always been the case. But right now, we are going through a pivotal moment in our country's history. And if you just watch what happened this week with the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, this is a rewrite or revision of the Voting Rights Act that has historically been renewed in Congress. Previously, when it was up for renewal in 2006, it wasn't voted on down partisan lines. But this is where we are in this country. But that's where you come in and that's where our good Georgia Democrats come in because y'all showed up and y'all showed out. Y'all showed up and delivered Georgia's 16 electoral college votes for Joe Biden. You showed up and delivered not one, but two U.S. senators to take control of the U.S. Senate. And so now it's time for us to continue to deliver and not allow one party to obstruct an agenda that we know the American people want. So our policies and our proposals might not be bipartisan down vote lines in Congress, but when American people are and Georgians are looking at the policies that Democrats are passing, it's overwhelmingly bipartisan. And I, for one, don't necessarily introduce things hoping to get bipartisan support. I introduce things hoping to change my community, hoping to help the people that I'm in D.C. to serve. If it gets bipartisan support, so be it. But that's never my goal. My goal is always, how do I best serve my constituents? How do I best serve the people that need help or need these policies most while I'm in Washington? So now that the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill has passed the House, it goes to the Senate, correct? And how do you anticipate? that will go. It goes to the Senate. And right now we are asking people to call their senators, call Leader Schumer and let him know how you feel about the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. And if you're from Georgia, let him know that you are from Georgia and he wouldn't be Leader Schumer if it were not for the votes that we sent him, those two U.S. senators from Georgia. So make sure that we are continuing to act, continue to stay engaged on this topic. I spoke on the House floor this week and I told my colleagues that if they ever wondered what they would be doing during the civil rights movement, this was their chance to find out. So I give that call to action to all of you listening today. If you ever wondered if you would have gotten involved, if you would have went to a march, if you would have done your part during the civil rights movement, you have a second chance. You have an opportunity to find out which side of history you want to be on. So call up to Washington, D.C. and let Leader Schumer know where you stand on voting rights. So everyone's got their homework. Let's get it done. Tell us about your joint resolution proposing an amendment. And and this is shocking to me, proposing an amendment to the Constitution to prohibit the use of slavery and involuntary servitude as a punishment for a crime. Why is this needed in light of the 14th Amendment? And shouldn't this just be a no-brainer of a bill? I can't believe it hasn't already passed. You know, I would think that it should be a no-brainer, but apparently that is not where we are in our country. Mm. I mean, it very much should be a no-brainer, but we're in a period of reckoning in our country's history. 
And unfortunately, our country's history is marked with racism and oppression for a lot of people. And right now, today, as it stands, the United States Constitution has a loophole in the 13th Amendment, and it includes the words, except for its punishment for a crime. Mm. And so there's a loophole for slavery. And so this amendment is very necessary. And eliminating this is another opportunity for us as a country to meet the moment of where we are. So I introduced this legislation along with Senator Jeff Markley right on the days when we established Juneteenth as a national holiday. So we established Juneteenth and we were celebrating the final abolition of slavery and everyone finally being freed in this country and marking it with a holiday. Yet we still had this exception for slavery in our constitution. So this legislation would send a powerful message on the United States leadership against forced labor. And so it's time once and for all that we abolish this unacceptable loophole. State by state, we're seeing action being taken. And we have voters in states, very red states, mind you, like Nebraska and Utah, who've already amended their state constitutions to abolish the loophole language. So we can do better. And I'm going to make sure that I continue to push until we do better. That's insane to me. (laughs) I I think most of our listeners or many of our listeners aren't even aware of this loophole. So thank you for actually doing something about it and bringing that to our attention. So what's wrong with Marjorie Taylor Greene? And I ask this in all sincerity because how do you navigate working around her in the House? Why has she not been censured yet? And why is minority leader Kevin McCarthy and other Republicans in positions of power so eager to embrace her viewpoints? Do you have any idea (laughs) why why that happens? So, you know, if I knew what was going on in her mind, that's the million dollar question. Yes. I would be a rich woman now. But I think back to just three days after I was sworn into Congress on January 6th, I was sworn in on January 3rd. Mm -hmm. And then three days later, our Capitol was stormed by a violent mob attempting to stop the certification of our presidential election results. Just let that sink in. As we're watching what is happening in other countries where we're trying to uphold democracy and freedom for other countries, here in our own country, the United States of America On January 6th, Americans, a violent mob, domestic terrorists, stormed our Capitol to try to stop the certification of our elections. Mm -hmm. But thankfully, no members of Congress were harmed. But I look at what Capitol Police are still going through to this day, and it's unacceptable. I know. I know. It it truly is. And it leaves so much of us speechless. I mean, I I still, I I don't get it. Not to mention the PTSD and the three suicides so far with the Capitol Police. Exactly. I mean, and we we continue to watch what Marjorie Taylor Greene is saying. And I can't speak to what's actually behind her actions. But in February, I teamed up with my colleague from San Diego, Sarah Jacobs, who was sitting in the gallery that day when the Capitol was attacked. And we introduced a resolution to condemn and censure Marjorie Taylor Greene. Good. And later that month, I voted and spoke on the House floor to strip her from her committee placements. And that resolution passed with bipartisan support. So in Congress, we can disagree all day. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to agree with my policy proposals. You don't have to vote on my bill, but there is no place for hateful and dangerous speech that truly threatens the lives of members, our staff, residents in DC, and Capitol Police. 
the United States Capitol is right in the middle of a place where people live, there are schools there, and it's the beacon of our democracy. That's the symbol of our democracy. And so we have to hold our own members accountable. And we did that when we stripped her of her committee assignment. And she has continued to show us exactly who she is. And I, for one, don't think she deserves to serve in the United States Congress, but we're going to have to prove that to the voters in her district. And I believe we will. And with your help, we'll certainly succeed. So finally, and I have one more question after this, but I was intrigued by your interview in rolling out about the racial wealth gap. How do you plan to narrow or close this gap? Because it's so important. And I wanted you to elaborate for just a moment on that. So critically important. Yes, yes. I have the opportunity to serve on the House Financial Services Committee where I get to tackle some of the systemic issues that have been plaguing our country. And I represent the city of Atlanta. And unfortunately, for all of Atlanta's greatness and richness, we have the widest racial wealth gap in the country. Mm. We lead the nation for economic immobility. And so as the member of Congress representing this district, I grew up in poverty. I grew up in a home with no indoor plumbing and no running water. So this is very, very near and dear to me and personal. And so I am working on making sure that when we look at the outsized amount of student debt that Black borrowers hold, what can we do about that? Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we've already moved forward in doing, we passed out of the house, is making sure that when we look at mortgage applications, how student loan debt is considered in your debt to income ratio because that impacts your ability to buy a home, which is one of the key ways to build generational wealth. And looking at things like how even in the mortgage process, when people are looking to buy homes, a lot of banks won't even give loans for less than $100,000. And there are people who are looking to buy more modest homes. And so we need to make sure that access to capital is available to everyone. And so I am continuing to lead on the House Financial Services Committee. I serve as the Vice Chair of Oversight and Investigations. We brought in all of the national credit bureaus to talk with them about credit practices and how some of their practices impact Black borrows differently from other borrows. And so we're continuing to make sure that we are holding every part of the financial industry accountable to make sure that everybody has a fair shot at the American dream. Oh, that's wonderful because it is critical. And I wish we had more time, but before we go, tell us a fun fact about yourself, something not related to politics that our listeners may be interested in hearing and knowing about you. Something fun. So one thing about me, I am an avid, avid sports fan, love sports. And you can find me any given Sunday or Saturday watching college football or pro football And I'm probably going to get a lot of booze from your listeners (laughs) because probably a lot of Georgia Bulldog fans, but I am a huge Alabama Roll Tide football fan. And if I could have any job other than serving the great people of Georgia's fifth congressional district, I would be a sports commentator and I would be cheering on my Alabama Crimson Tide on the sideline. Well, I certainly can't blame you. And I'm a huge pro football fan as well. Go Steelers. I had to throw that in there since we're talking about it. Now I'm going to boo you. (laughs) (laughs) Who's your favorite? Well, I didn't grow up watching pro football because I grew up in Alabama and Alabama was our pro team. Right. And so I kind of adopted the Falcons after I moved to Atlanta. 
Fantastic. Go Falcons. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you enough, Congresswoman, for joining us today and sharing more about your crucial work to maintain our democracy. I'm Meryl Clark, and on behalf of our team, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to the North Georgia Blue podcast. We hope you'll listen in next time when our special guest will be Fred Swan, Democratic candidate for Georgia Agriculture Commissioner. To learn more about the Fannin County Democrats and the work we're doing, visit us online at FannonCountyGeorgiaDemocrats.com. Share the North Georgia Blue podcast with your friends and family, subscribe and follow. If you enjoy our podcast, consider becoming a founding patron and friend of the show at NorthGeorgiaBluePodcast.com slash podcast patron so we can continue getting into more good trouble.